Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Today my guest is Misha D. He is a comedian who I met when we were both talking heads on this best week ever kind of wrap-up countdown comedy show about pop culture that was done for this producer out of Paris. So it ended up showing in other countries. I don't think it was ever in America. It was called Ultimate Countdown. And I also conducted some of the interviews with the other talking heads as a producer. And Misha would come in and give his sound bites. And he was always really smart and funny and nice. And so his stuff was so well observed and great. So I always wanted to have him on the podcast. And I said, when you have something that you want to promote or talk about, hit me up. And he did. Uh, he has a new comedy album called Dolphin of the Land. Uh, you can learn about it at dolphinoftheland.com. And it's on Spotify and a number of the other streamers. So it's pretty easy to get. It's really fun. Um, I love talking to him about that. But also he's got a few other things about what's going on with him that I found really interesting. First of all, he and his fiance were ready to move to the Netherlands and uh, and just get the hell out of Dodge. And it right as they were about to do it, COVID shut everything down. So that's interesting. Also, he's somebody that has been drawn more into stand-up as things become more uh, woke or whatever. Where a lot of people are saying, you can't say anything anymore, I'm getting out. He's being drawn to it uh, for those same dynamics. And I found that really interesting. So he was super fun to talk to. Um, before we get to that, I want to encourage you to uh, book a game night with me. I love hosting virtual game nights of You Don't Know My Life. If you have a special occasion, if you have friends you want to hang out with and you've got Zoom fatigue and you're like, I just can't do those cocktail parties where nobody knows where to talk. With the game, everything is directed. So there's none of that, like, can I get off now? Uh, do I have to say something? I can't think of any questions. Everything, I'm, I facilitate. So nobody's sitting around going... Are we done? Like, what's happening? So it's super fun. You don't know my life.com. I love doing it. And um, I would love to do it for you. So there it is. Without any further ado, here is Misha D. Hey there, coming to us via Zoom. It's my long lost um, TV on camera talking head buddy, Misha D. Hi, Misha. Hi. How you doing, Dennis? Good. It's so good to see you. We met being on-camera personalities for this roundup kind of comedy show produced out of Europe called Ultimate Countdown. And it was this company that I'd worked for a, a bunch doing these kind of quickie, talking head, pulled-together specials about Hollywood and stuff. But this one was really fun. They were like, do you remember any of the categories? Like, top 20... Oh, like, top 20 sexy movie scenes. Yeah. And, like... Top 20 celebrity marriages that fell apart. Right. All, all, and it was all for like generic. Uh, so like any hotel in any random country could just have this on and people would be like, oh, yeah, dumb American things. Yeah, yes. yeah. That's right. Mm. The point is you and I are both huge in Belgium because of the show. So huge in but, Belgium. Um, have, you ever, have you ever gotten um, fan mail from, no. from any random countries? I got just once. I received back when I had Facebook. Um, do you still have Facebook? I do. You should get rid of it. It's not good for your heart. You know it's not. I know it's not, and I want to talk to you about this. Good, um, good. Oh, anyway, so, so back when I had Facebook, one person in South Africa 
wrote me a very nice letter talking about how the Sony network is what they play in, um, I guess, the, the communal areas right. in the Navy where he is stationed, the Navy base he's stationed at, and that he really liked Ultimate Countdown. Was <laughs> it was he, a really great was experience. Was he an American? No. no, he was he was South African, South African stationed okay. in South Africa for for the for their navy. I hope that makes sense. We're gonna was, pretend it does. Was he amorous? Was he crushing on you? Was he flirty? I think he was trying to be a little bit, but there was a language barrier, so I was able to just kind of be like, "Oh, thank you so much." Oh, he actually. This is why we really started talking because he told me that he trained dogs. Like that was his job. He trained dogs for the Navy, which really confused me because I thought like dogs on the ocean, but I didn't want to get too into it. But um, I'm so happy that you, um, that I got one piece of band mail. Because those shows were fun. I think, and they turned out pretty good. good. I was into them, although they They never showed anywhere, but um, I got to meet you Mm -hmm. through that. And I was doing some of the producing as well. So I would sit off camera and, and like feed you questions and whatever. And I was always so impressed with how sharp and funny and well-observed your stuff was, and you weren't mean and bitchy, you were delightful. So when you, you when you emailed me about this um, this comedy album, I was so excited to listen to it, and it's really fun and delightful and smart, all those things that I liked about your comedy when I first met you. But I don't want to give away too much of the content because people need to listen. But um, how long have you been doing comedy for? My goodness, you're making me blush. Wow. Um, I'm really I'm really glad you like the album. It it was probably right after the 2016 election that I started doing stand-up uh exclusively. Because before that, I really liked doing uh pretty much any kind of performance. Like I met you doing Ultimate Countdown, Talking Head stuff, and I did a lot of storytelling. I really liked doing long form comedic storytelling but you know it was just kind of all just whatever over the place and I I worked you know full-time and I actually worked at a um, in development for tv and and then when the election happened I'm sure a lot of people you know how like something broke inside you right in 2016 uh and I just I just dropped everything my my contract with the company I worked for Right. Our TV development was ending soon. I didn't seek to renew it. I didn't seek another full-time job. And I started just working on stand-up full-time because I really loved the art form of being able to talk to people, which is why I like doing storytelling. But storytelling had like a very kind of artistic quality to it where it wasn't really that accessible. But stand-up is something that, you know, anyone kind of likes. And when I started doing it and going around town, what I really saw, especially after the 2016 election, was people really tired of dumb, and I specify that because there are lots of smart straight white cis men, but dumb straight white cis men nonsense like all the like it was kind of cool seeing mics become a little more hostile to people with uh really outdated opinions or people using you know fag or bitch as a punchline my favorite was seeing like the art form of seeing a straight man talk about his ex and have a joke where the word bitch or cunt is the punchline. And then like, and then watching no one laugh. And afterwards, I would explain to them, like, so 
that's not a punchline. That's just you needing to go to therapy maybe to talk about your issues with women, you know. And and then from there, I, I started to find a couple mics that were more diverse and really encouraging about a smarter kind of material. You know, because I, I love dumb lowbrow. Like, I love stuff that's just like a guilty laugh. But I really wanted to work on subjects that maybe you don't see covered as much. So, for example, um, one of the first topics that I, I developed during stand-up that I was happy to put on the album was talking about the concentration camps in Chechnya that they're yeah. putting gay people into. And it would it would really... Uh, it would would really mean a lot to me when I would do that set, I would do that joke, somewhere like, you know, at Flappers or at an open mic or at a bringer show, and then afterwards, people would come up to me and say, I didn't know that. Or they'd be like, is that that serious what you were saying about Chester? And I would say, yeah, that's true. I would have gay people, I would have gay men the same age as me come up to me and say, I really didn't know about, because how are you going to learn about it unless you're, I mean... One of the things that drove me the most nuts is it was also 2016 where we found out about Chechnya. And I just, every day for maybe six months, I would, I would swipe, you know, on Apple news when you're on your phone right. and I would see what the top headlines were. And it would be like something about, you know, an awful country falling apart, something about medical stuff, something about, and then maybe who Salino Gomez is dating. And I would just wait and be like, so is anyone no one's going to report. And it was a real thing seeing that, um, especially LGBT civil rights being horrifically abused and then specifically it being uh, out of our country, out of our mindset. It just, no one was hearing about it. So I really got into talking about things that uh, maybe people would miss, but if you could talk about it in a funny way, they would not only have a good time and laugh, but then afterwards have become a little more aware on something. But it's a challenge to figure out where's the funny in the uh, gay concentration camps in Ches- Chechnya. Oh, man. I, I, the original draft of the album was twice as long. And I swear to God, the entire half that was cut out was just rape jokes that, like, I love, but are way, way too blue for a first, a first album. I have a couple jokes about sexual assault because I, I really do love joking about Things like concentration camps, sexual assault, racism, homophobia, and uh, it's really it's it is really rough. It's a lot of uh, guest tester advice and a lot of seeing what people will laugh about and what people will feel too uncomfortable, which usually means guilty to laugh about. Because the best thing and something that drove me nuts when I would go to uh, other people's shows or other mics is whenever someone, especially a, a female comedian, let's say typically a straight female comedian, would have a joke about an eating disorder or sexual assault or an abortion. And you would just feel the entire room clench up. And it was always those jokes that I would start cackling over. And then there would always be a couple other people. And it was a real, you and you would start to see after a while, only if you've experienced something or you're really enlightened, aware, try to be in the know about something, well, you laugh about it because otherwise you're uncomfortable, but it's mostly just because you feel guilty because you either don't know about it, haven't experienced it, so you think you should just be solemn and quiet. And that's something I love to talk about too, is how 
with serious subjects, and a lot of you know dark comedians will talk about this, it's great to laugh about it. And if the joke is respectful and smart and actually has a narrative and isn't using something horrific as the punchline, to joke about it and laugh about it could be a really cathartic experience. And it's usually just people's um, feeling of discomfort and... Um, that could just be worked on by just testing a joke, checking which punchline, and then eventually you hit like that sweet spot where you can just make fireworks happen and people really respond to some horrific humor because you kind of shocked them or on, on that it was going there or you really surprised them on like what kind of stupid word choice you were able to choose to, to think about something so horrendous. And um, yeah. 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 How did you first come across the Chechnya story? How, do you, how did you learn about it? Oh my God, that was, it's not, it's not funny at all. Uh, okay, so after the election, like I said, everything broke inside me. And um, I I couldn't sleep or I, I woke up at like four, three in the morning. And um, and Adam, who you know, yes. was sleeping next to me. We're engaged now, by the way. I Happy engagement. Congratulations. Yeah. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. It's so funny because I... We're not social media people, so we didn't announce it or anything. So I'm just doing like a one by one when I see people. I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm engaged. So anyway, so Adam's sleeping next to me. This is before we got engaged. And he's dead asleep. And I, um, okay, you know when, and I'm sure as a gay man, you understand this. You know when you're in a real uh, emotional time and it's so easy to slip into um like Oscar-nominated film levels of drama. Sure. So so it's the middle of the night, Adam's asleep, I'm scrolling the news, and I think I was probably checking out um, Queerty or, you know, one of those gay sure. news sources, and they, re- they reported it, and I, I just started to have an overdramatic, but at the same time, you know, a pro- pretty, pretty appropriate response to something so horrible, but I really started to have a mini panic attack not a full one, but just where I, I started to think, this is it. This is exactly everyone was saying. Like, don't worry. It's not really going to be like fascism, but now he's president. And this is being reported about just a couple months later. And they're going to round us up. And I even woke Adam up shaking him, being like, Adam, Adam, they're going to they're gonna round us up. You have to wake up now. Um, so, yeah, so not too funny. And Adam, you know, was really sweet and calmed me down. Actually, no, he tried to calm me down. For which case I was a dick about. And I was like, don't you tell me they're not going to round us up. Well, there you go. Did you see the documentary Welcome to, Welcome to Chechnya that was on HBO a few months ago? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so well done and dark and whatever. Yeah. But I think the point is anything can be funny if you find your way in and the, if you do it the right way. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. anything is sort of like, it just depends on, it depends on the execution. It depends on mm-hmm. the, the crafting of the material and all that stuff. So where Which did is you... such a... oh, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, it's such a funny thing because that's when, that's what I see with people making jokes that they either have the right making or they haven't really done the research on it, is that they just don't find the, the way to make it funny. They just assume that the shock value or them just suddenly being like, what weren't expecting me to talk about being a woman will actually be where the joke comes from. And it's, it's a real, um, it's a real problem of arrogance and i find if you come at comedy with the humility of a real sense of please how if i can spoon feed you this very serious topic i got a lot of funny sugar on the spoon if you could just if you just go with it 
it's yeah. so interesting. You were drawn to stand up at a time when I think a lot of people would say everything's too PC. I you can't say anything. I don't want to do it. I'm going to get out of it. <laughs> you were pulled in in that <clears throat> climate. Yes, yeah, that was that was actually what pulled me in. Like I was saying, like I was saying before, I found people were actually kind of hungry for material that actually had substance because for every guy that I would see, every bro that I would see go up on stage, make a joke, make like a transphobic joke, and then get no response, that would then, you know, be met with them being like, oh, I'm sorry, is that that too real for you? I'm sorry, is that not PC enough for you? For every guy that would do that, you would have 10 people in the audience waiting for someone who was trans to make a funny joke about being trans in America. So it really just led me more. So it's so funny what you're saying uh, is true. A lot of people felt like things were too PC and that no one could say anything, but that actually kind of helped to thin the herd. Right. There's a, a, there's a vacuum. Of, there's a vacuum yeah. there for people that want to laugh mm -hmm. in this, mm -hmm. in this venue, if you can fill mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. in a way that, that that speaks to the way we are now, the, the way the world is now. And they do. People really do actually want to laugh, which is the thing that uh, guys who get mad and talk about cancel culture are all missing. It's just it's like, no, you personally are not funny. It's not the subject. It's not, it's that you think something is funny that's not. So you want to blame the subject. You want to blame PC culture. You want to blame but it's actually just that you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. How thick is your skin when you go into a comedy club? Just as, as sort of like, not, not not just performing, but watching the other performers? Uh, whew. You know, it's had to be pretty thick because, as, and you know, it's really funny. There's been a, a beautiful evolution I've seen, which maybe like just because I've, I've stopped going to places that were kind of backwards, but when I first started doing stand-up four years ago, more often what I have to do a show where the person who was going on right before me had a really homophobic joke. That would get a big laugh. And then I'd be like, uh, like my favorite was um, this guy, he said, uh, he said, you know, I got a feeling, I think these are gay, you know, because they sting with their ass. They attack you with their ass. And then he did a little act out of like a gay bee stinging people with their ass. And he was, you know, like, like a bro-y straight guy and he got a big laugh. And so then I went up after him and I said, man, I'm so angry. Cause you know, when you, when you think it's not going to come in handy, I was going to wear my bee costume tonight for my whole set. And then that got a big response. Yeah. You know? But some, sometimes it's, uh, it, it is rough because there is an amount where it should be, the culture changing, not you. I think for female comics, that's something they've dealt with since, well, since forever, where right. there's a line where it's like, no, 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 it's not us not being cool enough. You should just stop saying cunt on stage, you know? But um, but for me, it would be this kind of situation where, okay, so there was one show, I won't say where it was at, but it was a you know totally great comedy club. I performed there a number of times. And not enough people showed up for a show in one of their smaller spaces. So they said, oh, would you just, you know, we know you, you performed here before, uh, we like you, do you, we, we have, do you wanna just go up at the end of our main stage show that's going on right now? I'm super excited, I go, sure, whatever. 
So I sneak into the back of the main stage show, and it is a very lengthy, very bro-centric show where the audience is all bros and their girlfriends. And every single comedian is saying faggot, like over and over and over again, and getting huge laughs. And it got to the point where I kept saying to myself, like, you know what? It's not a big deal. I can go after this one. And then, like, the third, fourth comic. And then by, like, by, like, the 10th comic in a row, and I realized, like, wow, they're showing me at the end of a long night of faggots. Uh, and I actually just laughed. Like, I just told the, I told the host, I was like, you know what? I, and that's something I hate because I've repeated that story to people. And when I tell them, they always are waiting for the big payoff where I say, like, so then I went out and I was like, this bag gets not shaking it. And everyone cheered and they made me their kid. Right. Maybe it was like the end of Rudy or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was the slow clap. There was no Mm -hmm. slow clap. You, mm-hmm. There's no so clap. You totally you were looked, you were back in your car. You were on the road. You were maybe going to In and Out. I pussied out. I, I snuck up to the host and said, "And it sucks. I, I wish I I even had the courage, but I at that point it was still I was still really new to stand up, and and I just didn't want to make waves. So I said, "Hey, you know, I don't. I'm not. I'm not feeling too good. I'm just gonna go." And I could see the look on his face. He he was like. Oh, was it all the faggots? You know, like his eyes were telling right. me that. But he was just like, oh, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And I still regret it. If I if I could do it over, I probably would have uh, caused a whole big scene and maybe made them laugh. But in the moment, it's like you already get that stage fright of my back. Yes, it's scary <laughs> enough as it is. When you told me that story, I thought, what year was that? But if it, it was in the last few years, that's shock. I'm shocked by that. Not e- not even 2016. It might have been 2017 or even 18. It wasn't the very very beginning, because they knew me well enough that they were going to put me on a main stage show. Yeah, it it was. It's 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 a real mob mentality because I've been to shows where someone. I mean, I've been to shows where like benefit shows where Joe Rogan started making um, Kardashian jokes that then out of nowhere went into. Caitlin and talking, referring to Caitlin as a man, and the whole audience turned like just like no, no. But if you're in a spot where everyone's just kind of, you know, it's just not the kind of atmosphere that cares, and someone gets one good laugh and becomes a guilty laugh, and then before you know it, but that's how exactly you get any room. Like I think even this year, I've been to rooms that are like smaller mics where it's a lot more that if not enough women show up, end up being all straight men turns into a room where if a woman does come in late, she doesn't feel as comfortable because it becomes a, a giant bro kind of atmosphere. So it's still something that I feel like I have to fight, but it really is like the more armies of gay, people of color, female comics, it just makes these rooms not just better or more comfortable, but deeply funnier, like truly deeply funnier in a way that's just, ugh, just you can't, you can't be that you're really drawn to. Like, I know women who've left, who got the fuck out of comedy. Like, it's too <laughs> oppressive. It's too gross. But you're, yeah. you're, you're in. You're going in. Yeah, and I, I feel like there's a bit of privilege that I have to acknowledge with that because I, I, I yet to still be male and it's not until I get on stage and open my mouth that then people are immediately like, okay, girl. But, uh, but for sure with women, you're sitting there the whole time and you feel incredibly exposed. For me, like with that story 
with that main stage show that I just left, everyone's saying faggot the whole show, but they don't know I'm sitting there feeling invisible. So I can just choose to leave and it's not, I can choose to leave and fight another day. For women, I can imagine you're not just sitting there, you're sitting there the entire time feeling exposed. And why would you want to come back after that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the audience on your comedy album sounds like they're in love with you and there was such a great audience. Where did you sh- tape it? Where was this? It was at the Broadwater Theater in Hollywood. I said it like that because I was that proud of myself that I actually remember it off the top of my head. Uh, great, great theater, great space. I was really happy that people came out. I felt really lucky because now with everything, I you couldn't get you couldn't get people to show up. You wouldn't want to get people to right. show up. No, of course. It was, a, it was a great experience. And it was definitely something I couldn't have. I mean, my God, when I did storytelling for years, I could barely get a handful of people to come to a show. But I was able to really, I was genuinely, like, I could have, I could have just, instead of doing my show, walked out and fallen to my knees weeping at the idea that I really got a full audience to come see a stand-up show in Los Angeles because that's that by itself took four years to probably do. So being able to make an album, and I really make it clear on my website, like this album has zero companies behind it. There is no celebrity endorsement. It is just funny, I think, I hope. It is and funny. And if I it, any money that it makes goes to charity, and that's really... That's just, that for me is, that is for me. That's just a huge, huge thing for me. So yeah, it actually is a weight off my shoulders because if I was trying to make it and think like, how much money is this? Okay, then it would become a game of like, well, I gotta get this many streams and I don't know, how do I advertise it? And for me, I mean, I should be better at advertising it, but that's just like the bottom of my priorities list. Like I couldn't fathom trying to do a whole social media push for it. I'd rather just tell people and, you know... So, yeah. so do you do comedy full time now, or did you did you go into some other field after you left uh, TV development? I actually started working in mental health, which became a really, really, really cool thing for me to do. That's so interesting. Good for you. Yeah. In what yeah, kind of capacity? Um, working with therapists who have really problem clients. So basically, like, um, you know how. Uh, people will have physical therapists or, or like dogs. We were talking about dogs, like the foster parents. Right. And it's something to help socialize them for outdoor use. Right. Uh, I, I, I work with therapists who will contact me when they have uh, clients that need interaction with people, but obviously a therapist can't do that because they have boundaries. So my lack of boundaries ends up being really useful. And uh, yeah, so I help people who have really um, had difficult pasts uh, socialize again. That's amazing. Is it fulfilling? Really Does cool. it feel good when you do it? It feels amazing because the whole reason I went into television in the first place was because I was obsessed with this idea, which maybe you can relate. I feel like this is very American. Uh, we all really grew up on television. Most of our parents raised us on television. And especially... Um, like for for years before we found out he was a monster come to life, I would think about the Cosby show and what a huge deal that was because you had the civil rights moment, but it was really like middle America, the part of America that refuses to watch the news. 
it wasn't until like the 80s when the Cosby show came on that they were like, hey, black families, what do you know? They're kind of just like us. And I, I really grew up thinking how television is this amazing medium that really can move people. And, and um, you know what? That kind of fell apart with 2016, too, because right. 2016 was after a whole series of Glee. You know, 2016 was after a whole lot of different points of views of shows, of, and it didn't make a difference. So I really like the idea of stand-up because it was something you can just go out and do right. without spending years trying to get something made only to find out that it doesn't really change minds just you know entertains people but you can do stand-up you're directly talking to people you can see if you're affecting them or not they're not just putting you on in the background while they do dishes and also um mental health work it felt good to actually be working with people where i can see the progress the kind of clients i would work with i would work with uh probably for about a year at max and to actually see a client go from uh not knowing how to act around people to being excited to go out there and make friends and date is a beautiful thing that's really cool although now everything's shut down again so it, it's it's tough for probably for for the people that you're working with oh my god uh yeah it's 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 really problematic it definitely i it definitely dried up my client base but um but hopefully that will you know, do you want to hear something really, really horrible? Yes, I love hearing <laughs> horrible things. Okay, so because um, I was really happy just making art, didn't feel the need to work in TV development, which kind of led to, like, I can make albums and do stand-up anywhere. I don't have to leave in, live in L.A., which then turned into, well, uh, mental health is completely disregarded in America, but other countries actually pay for mental health care and it's part of the country's responsibility and my particular uh mental health care service isn't covered by most insurance companies so already if your insurance doesn't cover therapy you're getting therapy and then on top of that you're paying for an additional so it's it's really really hard so adam and i were planning on after we got engaged moving to the netherlands getting married and I would start a, um, probably a, possibly, hypothetically, a more successful practice there because people can actually afford mental health care. And then we, you know, adopt and do cute things and have kids and all that stuff. Um, and then the border shut down right before we were about to leave. So you guys were really ready to go to the Netherlands. Um, so ready that I can show you that our apartment is now just a lot of a lot of boxes wow. just kind of don't know when to unpack so did you have a place in the netherlands did you have did you know what you were going to do there oh my god we had everything planned i Dennis, and you guys could you guys you. could you guys could migrate there like they would let you in uh, we could have before. Yeah, before. Yeah, they actually. There's. Um, I almost don't want to give away these secrets because I don't want too many people. Because I'm looking for ideas, now. actually, to escape this horrible country. Yeah. yeah. So the, the there's something called the Dutch American Friendship Treaty, and the way it works is uh, it was established a long time ago. If you're American and if you move to the Netherlands you can then within the first couple months show that you have a business plan, which you just make like a fancy keynote. 
and that you have enough money in your bank account. It has to be over a certain thousands of, uh, of euros to prove that you have some kind of seed money. And they'll give you a self-employed, or you can work towards having a self-employed visa. So there really isn't a big issue. I know for some countries, you have to be like showing that you were requested by a company to work there. But you can actually be self-employed. They are big proponents of uh, self-starting cell phone companies. They really do like to help people uh, make their own businesses. It's a great startup kind of culture. And uh, yeah, we... Have you ever heard of Mr. B&B? Yeah, it's like gay Airbnb. Uh, so we found someone on that who we liked so much when we went over there for like a, like a, like a recon mission back right. in the fall that he agreed to let us stay there for at least a few months while we look for a permanent place. Uh, a friend of mine that lives there that is a lesbian with two kids was also offering us that she would help us, you know, if we needed anything for looking for a place that we could stay with her for a bit. So we had everything lined up right before the pandemic. And when I say that the border closed right when we were about to leave, I mean, like, our flight was on July 3rd. And then July 2nd, they announced that they were going to close. But, well, they announced they were reopening the border to everywhere except America. So um, so that's why I got Pepito. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a mind trip. That's You were going to move to a whole new country, and now you're here. Um, yeah, that was, I was thinking already, like, well, that's what my second album will be about. Yeah. The, when I went there, the stand-up scene was really, really cool. In the Netherlands, they actually uh, go see shows because they want to, which was a weird, like, I was trying to ask somebody, and I was saying, wait a second. So, like, when you perform, it's like a bringer show, right? That you get to perform, you have to bring, like, five or six people, and they're looking at me like, no, people people just come see shows because they want to see shows. <laughs> oh, that like, sounds amazing What well. are you talking about? It's crazy. Um, yeah. Where does the title of your album come from? I know because I've listened to it, but what can you tell my listeners about Dolphin of the Land? Uh, but I call it Dolphin of the Land because specifically dolphins are really queer, which I talk about on the album. And it's uh, really funny. And I, I tell everyone that they should look it up because dolphins are really fucking gay. I thought you were going to say that the gay connection to dolphin is dolphin shorts. But that's, I'm an old person, so you may not even get that <laughs> reference. But that was very 80s. That's, that is a great deep cut. I totally miss it's a, it. It's a super deep cut. You were doing a show called Woke Lahoma, uh, which oh. I thought was the funniest name. Tell me about oh, Woke Lahoma. I miss Woke Lahoma so much. So that was, I think that was probably the first art project uh, my fiance and I worked on together. It was also after the election and also after that feeling of, okay, so nothing really matters and nothing really actually makes a difference or teaches anything to people. But when I got that vibe that there really were people that wanted to go to shows that were more diverse, uh, especially seeing women and gay men and people of color go to shows and then feel uncomfortable and then actually afterwards talk to one another. Like, hey, do you know, is there a good mic that's a little bit more... So Adam and I realized that we should just make one. Where was it at? Where did you do it at? Oh, man, that was the best part. It was walking distance from our apartment because we were looking for a space. And then one day we were walking just on Venice. And 
this place that opened up called the truck stop and it was trying to be like a really hip uh health food um uh food cart tiny place that was next to a giant parking lot so they built a tiny stage next to it it was shut down not because the venue didn't like it but because the owner of the parking lot realized he could make more money with just the land of the parking lot if he turned it into a valet parking paper parking spot so they couldn't have a tiny stage anywhere so overnight it was just gone and it's I still have people ask me like, oh, did Oklahoma ever come back? And like, we feel so bad. But hey, now that we're stuck in this country, like it's the Handmaid's Tale indefinitely, we should probably start it up again. Start because up. Um, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. I love that. That 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 should have been a movie where you guys put on a comedy show and you save, you get rid of the angry developer and you save the yeah. parking lot. We got to save the <laughs> parking lot. It's our parking lot for the kids, yeah, for art. And then there would have been like a, a dance off. Yes. That would have been so great. Oh, man. It's crazy. Tell me a story about bombing. I always bomb when I I try to be... I'm really anal retentive with with the comedy. So I... I Oh, sorry. This pooch is snoring, and it makes me so happy because the way... It's all good. I can't even... I can hardly hear it. Yeah. Look how... I just can't even stand it. Okay. Um, So the thing is, I try to be a little less anal retentive because the way I am with... Uh, the comedy is, I really will write it out like a monologue. Right. So it, it's like I'm memorizing every word to the point, and I know a lot, of, a lot of comics do this, but it's really to the point where like anything improvised, anything that sounds off the cuff is completely planned, completely written out of time. So I try to get more relaxed with it because I know a lot of comedians don't work that strenuously. They just have bullet points. They can remember it. They don't have to write it down to remember it. They just say it over and over again. But it truly is every time I tell myself like, oh, I don't have enough time to rehearse or to write it down. You know what? I know it. Let me just like be cool about it. That's always when I bomb. Always, always, always when I bomb. It's like the dating equivalent of um of seeing someone you have a crush on the one day that you're just wearing your laundry clothes. Yeah. It is, oh, I have to prepare so much. And then I, I love it. But if I try to be, like, just suave and cool about it and I don't have, like, exactly what I'm going to say prepared, I'm fucking yeah. bomb. You can't half-ass it or, you'll, uh, you're, or it won't work as yeah, well. Yeah, that must be what it is. And yeah. also, I, I really don't like improvising. Yeah. I Even though when I first moved to L.A., I did improv my first job. I, I've never liked it. So what was I the like job? Having, it was working at, okay, you know Knott's Berry Farm? Yeah. Okay, you know, not scary farm. Yeah, when people were scaring people. <laughs> so, uh, the the very first uh, year that I was in LA, which was 2010, so uh, ooh, whole, it's been a whole decade now. Um, I saw on Craigslist a audition, an audition for a improv show, an improv show. And that it turned out to be at Not Scary Farm. And it was just uh, me and one other guy got picked for it. And the, the third guy was the guy who was holding the auditions. And it was really fun. It was on the Birdcage stage. I can't remember that that's something I did not forget. Uh, so the Birdcage stage, which was their smaller, like maybe medium, medium size stage. Uh, and it was three times a night 
five or six nights a week, we would go do these long form 30 minute improvs where the stage would spin and had Velcro and it was all black. So you could just stick on set pieces or like trees and you would make it like, so you would get like a location, the woods, monster, uh, poop Freddy Krueger, uh, character's name, you know. And then we would just do these long, we'd throw on wigs and dresses and run back. And it was actually really fun. And then I used the money I made from that because it was just like a one month, two month gig to buy my first car. And then it was right around that time that everyone got really into like, well, if you want to do comedy, you got to get into uh, Groundlings. You got to do that. You got to right. do UCB. And my mindset was like, I just, I just did that. And wait, I just got paid to do that. Why would I? pay to learn how to do that thing I just did and um and that's why I've never done improv again wow that's wild though <laughs> you guys would do like this improv show like a groundlings type show improv show at not scary farm so it was always different that's why yeah, I mean, sure it wasn't as good as a groundlings show but you know it was really funny and it like we there was never a night where we completely bombed so when I would go to like an improv school and ask like, well, how much is a class? They'd be like, well, you got to take the 101, which is $400. Then you go out. I'd be like, all right, hold on. I, I do I do know how to, which is probably the biggest thing I messed up moving to LA because it's all about networking. But I did all of my schooling and like learning how to do all these things before I moved to LA. So once I moved here, I was like, okay, I'm ready to go. Where are the, where's the auditions? Where's the improv shows? And everyone's like, oh, you actually have to, meet people and pay them before they will let you watch it you have, it's like a whole pro it's a whole process that no one told you about so oh. that's, that's that's crazy where, where did you move from where are you from new york oh cool. i moved i moved from uh new york new york city I went to, mm, right outside it i went to school in yonkers uh, and then I grew up on Long Island, which I don't even tell people. So that, that's how you know I like you, Dennis. I feel I'm very honored. I love that. Um, it's a it's a gross place. It, it, oh. um, you talk about Mike Pence a bit in the comedy album. What can you say anything about him? Do you have any thoughts or your take on him? Or um, I mean, I I love that I, he gets gay. I love that he gets gay brush painted like Randy Rainbow will be like girl. Listen, Queen, like I, I just, every time somebody paints him with the gay brush, I find it hilarious. Is that there's, mean? There's, is that not wokey? I, okay. <laughs> there is a definite understanding that we should be uh, kind to those who are in the closet and that it's not nice to out people. But also, like, did you hear the Lindsey Graham outing that was where, where the fuck did that go why wasn't that in the news why didn't that blow up bigger i thought why did no one like really come forward with a good good evidence well, uh, judged on based on my sort of twitter scrolling like maybe one or two escorts were ready to go guns blazing but they didn't feel like they had an army behind them of all the other that's so people. annoying yeah, yeah so that's an example where no guilt no yeah. guilt, no guilt whatsoever. And I would say Mike Pence definitely falls in there yeah. where I don't feel any guilt about being honest about the fact that like this is not uh, slander, this is not us making fun of him, and we could be wrong, but as gay men, we do have the ability to look at someone, listen to someone, 
and just say girl you know and <laughs> and fuck my i mean mike pence is the yeah he's the pinnacle for me of like religious clearly closeted clearly gay like if he was just born in a different state time period healthy supportive family network he would be gay like it, it doesn't even there's no doubt no doubt in my mind yeah. so i have no issues talking about that because when you're publicly homophobic all bets are off for yeah. me i say yeah so your your album is available on spotify but somehow mm -hmm. i'm i'm not very spotify literate or whatever so i'm playing it and then it'll just start playing a song and i'm like i haven't even heard the whole album yet it'll just start playing a song maybe it's my um not knowing how to use it properly or not paying the money, but one of the songs that popped up was What's Poppin'? And I thought you would like to hear that. What? Because maybe because it made, it made uh, your album made them give me What's Poppin'? Like, so Spotify said, like, because you're listening to this, we suggest What's Poppin'? Yeah, and then What's Poppin' and then Dua Lipa? Stay what's Poppin'? What's Poppin' by who? I don't know. It was young and hip and cool, maybe a little hip-hoppy. I'm going to look up what's popping. Yeah, like, but I just, I just thought that was like kind of a fun little moment. Um, no, I love how on your website you describe your, you, you say you're a little extra. I am a little extra. That's very true. That's a cute turn of phrase. What do you mean by that though? You know, I, growing up, I always uh, was clearly gay. Like in that very, I don't think I made it on this album, but I, I have a couple bits talking about that. And it's a unique, and I'm sure you know this too, uh, it's a unique thing that when you're gay, more often than not, other people know you're gay or suspect you're gay before you're even aware of what that is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I think that's why a lot of us grow up incredibly insecure about what about us is identifiable as gay. Right. So I used to really uh, be frustrated or mad because uh, it was always in a derogatory way that people would point out how gay I was. And then, I don't know, something happened a couple of years ago where when extra became a popular term, where a friend of mine who is no longer a friend of mine, but uh, a friend of mine who was thinking about introducing um, Adam and I to this new guy he was dating, and I guess the guy was, like, super low-key or maybe even like kind of on like the like butch spectrum or whatever. So he said to us, okay, I'll meet, I'll introduce him to you guys. Like, why don't we all go to the beach or maybe a hike? Okay, but you can't be, just don't be extra. And Adam and I were both like, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. And he was like, well, you know, you guys are just kind of extra sometimes. And ever since then, I kind of took it, to mean something good, I yeah. guess, right? Just kind of, there was some kind of weird turning point there where I kind of thought like, you know what, I am fucking extra. And that's for sure. And I think it probably was the first time someone had said something like that to me since I had started doing stand-up. Right. And it kind of maybe clicked in a way where I realized like, you know, extra is a good word to describe me. And that's definitely what people, at least when they see me perform, if they've never ever seen me, heard of me before, gravitate towards because there are times where I'm completely lost or I've lost my place. I forgot what I was going to say. And I will just say something off the cuff and it'll get a big laugh. And afterwards I'll be like, that was not funny. I fucking, and, and people, will, uh, Adam, well, he's usually my go-to for this kind of stuff. He'll tell me like, no, people really liked it. And then after a while I realized, 
when you're extra, which, you know, for a lot of gay men means feminine, but really just means extra you. Like, you are specifically extra whatever makes you you. That stands out, and people gravitate towards that. And it's why certain people, especially gay men, can say things and it come across as funny, come across as witty, and not be insulting or rude. Because when you're extra, it's kind of like you're giving someone like just like a little treat. <laughs> Your personality right. comes with a little treat. Right. I love it. When I read that little turn of phrase, I thought it was sweet. I thought Thank it was you. endearing and like and accurate and fun. What do you think of the website? Is it too like a 1990s website? Because I'm so against social media, I really thought to myself, I'm just going to make a website like it's the 1990s and like Space Jam has its own web page, you know? Well, I like your website and it worked both on the on the phone and my laptop. So it, it was Thank nicely you. integrated that way. Um, but I did find it curious that you're not on social media very much because I did kind of poke around. Yeah. I'm, I'm not very active on Twitter at all. I'll, I'll tweet my podcast out. Um, mm -hmm. I try not to scroll on Facebook, but use it to like invite people to shit and whatever, promoting my dog and pony shows. But scrolling mm -hmm. is like an emotional slot machine. It's like carries, yeah. no. bars, <laughs> bleh, you know. And um, Twitter, this is my impression of Twitter. <laughs> That's Twitter, you know. Um, that, that is a phenomenal. <laughs> Twitter impression. Thank you. I, with my things that I'm promoting, like I have this game that I co-created and stuff like that. I, 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 there's a part of me that's always like, if you were better at social media, this would have blown up already. Or, you, you know, or you would have, you know, I have a little bit of social media shame. So I, when people say I, I checked out of it, I, I kind of um, respect it. But talk to so, me, talk to me about that journey. I would love to, because I felt, so much social media shame that the weight of thinking, oh, if I was just better at social media, this would have, you know, taken off. The weight of that is nothing to the weight lifted of social media shame when you just cut the tether. Because especially once you cut the tether, you notice how fake it all is and you can kind of notice how fake it all is while you're still doing it but you're that's like saying like you see how dumb gambling is while you're in the slot machine you're putting the quarters in right because you're still thinking like just maybe but what i would feel so much social media shame because whatever i did wasn't good enough wouldn't do whatever i did no matter how well it did it would then immediately be about what the next thing is going to be and it never actually went anywhere and right. i think you know, it's like, uh, I don't know if you keep seeing on Tumblr, like that saying, like the greatest trick the devil ever played. I keep seeing um, the greatest trick capitalism ever played and just says things, you know. And really, one of the greatest tricks I think capitalism ever played was when there just were no more jobs available, they made people feel like gaining followers was progression towards something. Right. Towards a livelihood or a standard of living or being able to kind of get by or have your dreams come true or become successful. And if successful. you're starting from nothing, how long does it take to get 10,000, 20,000, 30,000? And these are still the numbers that don't matter. It's not until you hit like 30, 40, 50,000 that then anyone is like, oh, okay, you hit 100,000? 
Yeah, I guess that's true enough. Like the people that that's supposed to impress, that's the level that impresses them. And on top of that, the reason I say it's a giant trick is that especially, especially Twitter, I remember when Twitter first came out, I was actually um, watching The View. Like it was on in the background. Like I wasn't That's watching okay. it. But, but, but they started talking about Twitter and they were saying like, well, Paris Hilton said on her Twitter and or Lindsay Lohan something about, and I remember thinking to myself, that's so weird. I have not heard of Twitter yet. I don't know anyone who uses Twitter yet, but people who are already not the age demographic for Twitter are on TV talking about famous people being on Twitter. And that was my first that was my first exposure to it. And then I really started to see just the growth from there of what was clearly something made for celebrities for people that already are well-known, that already have followings, that can immediately gain followings. It was made for them with the idea of making everyone think that it's for everyone. And there, I mean, there is no, with the, the, same, the same idea of playing a slot machine, like the number of people that actually Twitter helps them is so, so low. And if it does work, it works the same way that having uh, chimp mail would work or having just a really good series of mass texts would work. Like you're just contacting people you literally know. Yeah. And they've done studies. I mean, one of the best things was, um, and this really helped me get off social media. One of the best things was Adam was working for, um, it, he's done advertising work and a company he was working for that he was helping them with their commercials, uh, would make him sit through all of these meetings. So I would be at home feeling all of this social media shame. Right. And then Adam would come home from all of these social media meetings and all of these big deal behind closed door meetings are all to say how this doesn't work. Like the reason we have micro influencers yeah. now and the reason we have like, so many people putting on their Instagram feed out of nowhere, like, here's a funny joke. Here's my dog. And then, you know, people are always asking, what kind of face products do I use? Well, right. let me tell you what my... And you're suddenly like, this is a commercial. The reason we have that now is because social media wasn't actually working to sell anything. So that's why we keep having these mutations because companies are trying to find ways to make this thing that we trick people to think works actually work, which it doesn't. Which it doesn't so, work. Um, I, I really do suggest like I, to just keep making it word of mouth and keep, I really don't think you should feel any social media shame. I tell everyone, get off Twitter. There is no reason for it. Get off Facebook. And I mean, I like, I, I actually I don't like Instagram but I'm okay to keep it as being the one thing that I'll keep just to point people towards uh, the website for my album. And that just the end. Yeah. I really mean it. What is your Instagram, by the way? It is not real Misha D. Cause that's how much I hate social media that yeah. I wanted to make it the opposite of people that it's like real this person. Right. But it actually was the, wor the worst idea because 90% of the time when I do a show, the host will be like, hey, before I bring you up, uh, what's your social media handle? And I'll say, oh, it's not real Misha D. And then they'll be like, all right, so his social media handle is real Misha D. Every time, every time, every, every time. Oh, so it backfired. Um, You're trying to be edgy. I, uh, 
once, because knowing you from your comedy and also from working together with this stuff, you're great with a one-liner. Like if you're the guy that wanted to tweet a joke all the time, and I feel like I could do that too. I don't want to. I tried mm -hmm. once to make a pop culture observation about mm -hmm. Taylor Swift's, um, it was what she did in 1984 and kind of went pop. And I made some joke about how country was like, fine, we didn't need to do any. It was the most benign, like, little observation. I felt gross about it. I still do. But I will do what we did. Well, you, you can definitely let that go. She's feeling great. No, I didn't feel, so I thought I thought it was fine because it was a fanny of hers. I like, I'm a fan of hers. Mm -hmm. But it was just this yeah. observation. I just felt gross about throwing this thing in the middle of somebody's mm -hmm. day. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I have a weird, for someone who likes to think of funny things to say or share or whatever. I do not have that gene. And in fact, no, I, I have the opposite. I'm glad to hear you say that because, and you mentioned this before with Ultimate Countdown, and I'm glad you noticed it. I really would work hard to, even when it was people that I really, really thought were gross, uh, find jokes that were not mean. You weren't mean in, and you weren't bitchy. Unless it was a man who's really, really famous still, even though he did something horrible to a woman or a minority, I will then make sure to bring it up. Right. I, lo I love how many clips they had of like, oh, you shouldn't forget this guy was accused of rape. Uh, and they love, they usually would cut those out. But anyway, uh, I really would work hard because even if I don't like someone's style of music or their style of whatever they do, or even if I don't really like celebrities who are celebrities just for being celebrities, but I don't want to, I just feel like there's something that's so easy and doesn't feel great about just letting your humor be like shitting on people. Yeah, you don't want to. And that's wanna... such an easy humor too. Right. And I don't want to make... Kylie Jenner's day a little worse for some bitchy mm -hmm. thing I say. It's mm -hmm. fine. Mm -hmm. You know, whatever. And I thought, I don't mm -hmm. think I'm going to, on my deathbed, I, I don't think I'm going to look back and go, God, I wish I'd tweeted more. Um, no, and I think no one is. And think about like the best tweets that you could possibly think of. You post them and then at best, the same people who like everything you tweet likes until finally, oh my God, somebody who perhaps has a huge following, like something you, and then a lot of people like it, and that's it. And you move on to the next thing. And it's just a huge time suck that really, like, culturally, people were guilted into thinking they had to be doing. And it just, it really made me sick. And then finally, once I got rid of it, it felt like such a, such a relief. The funniest thing after I stopped using Facebook was I was at a party, and a friend of mine was um, telling me Maybe his friend's partner was telling me something about Facebook, and they were like, "Oh man, you're so lucky you got rid of Facebook. You're doing this thing now." And they continued to tell me about this awful thing they hate about Facebook that Facebook does now, while they continue to use Facebook. Right. And I was just like, "Yeah, sounds like you should get rid of it." <laughs> yeah. Not good. What did you notice right when you got rid of it? Uh, I accepted that I would never ever know someone's birthday again right and i needed all my friends to be okay with that like right. i told them like you ha and i also accepted that nobody was gonna know when my birthday was right but that was okay because i i really hate i think yeah. birthdays are stupid so uh aside from that the biggest thing i noticed was a, an immediate sense of relief really truly i mean if you can do it dennis hensley i'm telling you when you <laughs> Because that feeling of like, I haven't posted in a while, 
oh, people are going to be like, what is he? I mean, I would get so paranoid. And I think a lot of people do this. I would really imagine some fictional person like going on my profile and being like, he hasn't posted since when? Well, it looks like his life must be in shambles. And once you get rid of the actual platforms, you just don't have that. And there's no, the only people that have said like, oh man, I tried to find you and you didn't have blah, 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 are people I didn't want finding me. I know people talk about the whole joy of social media supposed to be that you get this feeling that like people are with you because they know what you're doing and where you are. But I feel most comfortable when no one knows what I'm doing or where I could possibly be because that's, that's, that's private. <laughs> yeah. It's my, it's, it, it is my life. Well, tell people how they can find your special. Oh my God. Okay. So super easy. Dolphin of the land all one word, .com. Dolphinoftheland.com has links to all the charities that all the streams and downloads are going to, has links for every platform. It's on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, uh, maybe Amazon. I don't know. Amazon's gross. Maybe I didn't put it on Amazon. I'm not too sure. But it's, you know, all the things. You can, find a, the you can find a place. How hard, just from a practical point of view, how hard is it to put something like that out with all the streaming services and stuff? Is it work intensive and you have to educate yourself about algorithms or I don't know, all the stuff? Well, you know, like I said, my fiance is uh, well-versed in how those kinds of things work. So I definitely had to um, ask him for help, like a pathetic, sad baby that I am. Uh, But you know what? It wasn't, I would say the post-production for the album, like really making sure it sounded good and cutting it down because I didn't want it to be much longer than a half hour. Uh, probably took the longest. The actual getting it online, which is for sure the thing that you think like, oh, how am I going to get set? And that's another reason to tell people like, don't focus on representation. Don't focus on how am I going to sell this? Just put your art out there. If it's good, just put it out there. If it's not good, put it out there and then make some more. And it's not, Spotify had a big thing about how to submit it and then it could take for up to six weeks before we clear it and put it up. And then like not even a week later, I got a message being like, yeah, we're good. It's on. Great. So really, truly not that hard. I love it. Are, are you hearing from people that have listened to it? How do they, yeah, how, would I, the, how would you hear? It's uh, how am I hearing from people? Yeah. Or what would, I, what would I hear? Do you have an email? Like if some, if somebody was a fan and wanted to write you a fan letter or something. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, oof, man, the best way to do that, I would say there is my email should be on my website. Yeah. I'm going to check the room. Is my email on my website? There's a form. There's a form. Oh, great. Okay. They can meet you through your website. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. So on yeah. the website, for the, on my website for the album, dropintheland.com. There's at the bottom, there's a contact me. I would love it. If anybody wants to leave me any feedback, it could be anonymous hate mail. I'll take it as constructive criticism. Did I tell you the one time I got hate mail actually from doing Ultimate Countdown? Was it from Ultimate Countdown you got hate mail from it? What? Well, I don't know if it counts as hate mail. I I decided to put... um, I, I made a YouTube, which I quickly discovered also, not as bad, but similar to social media. Like it's the same and it's, it wasn't getting any followers. I took it off, you know, but I put a bunch of my clips for that. Maybe I'll put back on, on the website now. Uh, I put a bunch of clips up from Ultimate Countdown and one of them got one comment and this was the only comment any of them got. 
and it was from somebody also from another country, but I don't know what country. And it just said like, um, I remember this. Oh, hated you. You were the worst part of the show, faggot. Or like, homo, homo. Wow. You got gay bashed for Ultima Countdown? Yeah. And it was so, it was such a juxtaposition from how much the, um, the Navy guy in South Africa loved it. So I just commented under his comment, um, a quote from Janelle Monet, uh, when somebody on social media made a comment about how she looks way hotter without tuxedos and why does she got to wear like all that unsexy stuff. And she commented, um, sit down. I am not for your consumption. So I just wrote that in quotes and then wrote Janelle Monet social media. Uh, that was, that was the one piece of hate there mail. There you go. Uh, you laid it out. You laid, laid it, it down. down. It's been so fun catching up with you. I'm so glad you're putting your stuff out there in the world. I Thank want you, you so to much. move to the Netherlands and yet I don't. Uh, I'm torn about that. Oh, wolf. Yeah. Well, oh, I do this thing at the end called the observation deck, but I usually use cards mm-hmm. and we can't do that since we're here. So I'm going to ask you a random question that I've been playing around with as adding to I that. I love that. Okay. What's something that when you were growing up, somebody else had that made you green with envy? <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give two answers because one's, one's not a thing. Okay. Um, cool. Okay. I remember when I was a kid, I really wanted one of those Barbie Hot Wheels, like electric cars that you could actually say was a real tiny car for a child. Yeah. And they made like a boy version that was like a Jeep, but I really wanted the pink Barbie one. But my parents wouldn't get me either because they rightfully probably suspected that I would just go. Like I would be gone on the street. Uh, but the, the honest to God first memory I have of unbridled jealousy was in kindergarten, we all got to go uh, to, you know, on Halloween and costumes, whatever we're wearing. And I just wore like a, a Batman and or Robin costume that I loved. And probably Robin, let's be real, I was gay. Uh, so I loved that costume. But then I got to class and one of the boys, who was like a cute white boy that I had a crush on, was done up as Pinocchio but like in a really like his mom clearly made it and like he had like a little red nose and the tiny little hat like old school Pinocchio he, not, he you know, nailed tiny. it and I was so jealous that I didn't want my costume anymore all I could think about was how much I wanted his costume <laughs> you, you were beside <laughs> yourself you were beside you yourself I was beside I was so beside myself gooped wig flown his outfit was incredible mine was store-bought trash and i i i may have like thrown a tantrum i was so mad about it and i still remember that it was like a, what a weird thing you know it's a real lesson grass is always greener i, I i've always had to worry about that that i love it all right um <laughs> final question what is it meant to you to go into the stand-up when you did and and have that be part of your life. What has it brought to you? Oh, wow. What has it brought yeah. to me? Um, a, re- a genuine feeling of autonomy because especially living in LA, especially, especially, but I think this is something all Americans have to deal with. Um, we are always in a state of waiting to actually start our lives and especially working in LA, working in entertainment, there's always that feeling of like, okay, once this thing sells, 
was this career? And I talked to someone recently about having kids and they were a bit older and they were like, yeah, I it might be too late for me. I was, the dream was that when I made it, that then I would have enough money and then I would have kids. And that's, that's, that was such a wake up call for me because I used to also be like that where I thought, well, I can't have kids until I have at least a million dollars. And I mean, obviously you want to prepare and you don't want to just jump into things foolhardy, but there's a real sense of waiting for your life to begin that stopped, not completely, because I think it's, so, it's something we all, something I struggle with, but it, it really helped qualm it where I was able to, um, did I use the word qualm correctly? I think so. I, I, I like it. It sounds like to me. <laughs> With just the idea of actually doing something, because all the years that I worked in TV development, I really was, like, I wanted to be performing. That's why I did storytelling, with the idea of being that, like, well, I love doing storytelling. It doesn't really get me out there that much. But, you know, once I, for some reason, have this job in entertainment that has gone far enough that then I can make art, that then people will care about, because why? I can say that... <sighs> America's Got Talent wanted to feel, oh my God, I got asked, oh, this is the reason I kept Instagram, because it's, it is a good way if strangers want to contact you. I got contacted to audition for America's Got Talent. That's right cool. before, but I, I, I said no, and I haven't even told people that because I'm sure people would be like, well, that's kind of a missed opportunity. But it was truly, it came just as I had gotten to a point where I had worked in TV enough to know how I don't I shouldn't I want to use an I don't want to use an unkind word um how well produced those shows are where they're great for everyone except any artist going on the show <laughs> does that make sense yeah like those shows work great for the audience and great for the judges those shows really exist for the judges actually but to actually go on it it's just oh. and uh and i finally got to a point where i felt like i i really have some autonomy i have an album i have a, a craft that i feel good about that I feel good enough about that i can call a craft and not want to kill myself for calling it a craft and um and I feel like that's something that I did not have before starting stand-up because it was always this idea that I really think a lot of people are, are stuck in in LA where they think their art can start once they get to a point in their professional career. And jumping to a different profession was really great. And it helped me realize that the art I wanted to do had nothing to do with business and being able to separate them, which is really hard to do in America because we're really trained to know right. how to monetize and think about monetizing everything uh it was huge it really opened up my life in a way that meant so much i love that how does your humor work with your mental health job is there overlap? oh well okay i i i purposely don't talk about uh my mental health work in my stand-up because i want to keep them separate and i don't talk about doing stand-up with my clients Except I always say I'm, I always say that, and then at some point it accidentally comes up, and then I have to make sure that they don't kind of like look me up. Uh, but you know, um, oh, how does it impact? Are I there really... parts of you that get used in both, or is it how does it how do they resonate with each other, or do they? You know what? The, the, the biggest way they resonate with each other is I deal with trauma in both. I really like discussing traumatic things. 
in comedy and being able to discuss them by making them funny. And I really like that I can make people laugh when discussing their mental health issues. And, uh, and that's been, you know, really great. Like I, I love when I can make a client laugh solely because I caught them like in a logic trap. Like one time I was talking to uh, a client of mine and he, with his therapist's help and with my help was finally being able to um, be social in a way that he hadn't been since uh, his primary relationship that he had had for decades had ended. And he started talking to a guy online and then he showed me a picture of him and the guy looked just like him. And I didn't know if I should say that or not. And then finally he said, like, he's really cute. And I said, he is really cute. And then I said, do you notice he looks like, Ooh. and uh, and he said, yeah, you know, he does kind of look like me. And this is a guy who would never admit that he was attractive, could never, ever, ever do it. So then at the very end of our session, I said, you know, I don't know if you are aware of this, but by the um, transitive property of cuteness, uh, by the law of conservation of cuteness, you finding this guy who looks like you cute must mean that you yourself are perhaps cute. And he, like, and he laughed and it was a funny, and it just, it, you know, it's, a, it, it's moments like that that I, I think like, you know, being able to make people laugh has really come in handy in so many ways. And finding mental health was actually a great way to harness it because when I worked in TV, it was great for meetings, it was great for job interviews, it was great for asking somebody how they like their coffee, but being able to use humor to help people process self-esteem issues and trauma feels so much better. So yeah, right. my, actually my comedy does totally work in both. I, I think, think so, because I think in that situation, he probably was able to hear that in a way that didn't embarrass him, didn't, you know, it, it was kind of like the elephant out, was out of the room, and you had a laugh about it, but he was able to connect those dots in a way that probably helped him. And that's also how it is with uh, comedy, because I'll make jokes and I'm able to get people to laugh at it at a way where they don't feel guilty and they don't feel like I'm shaming them because they didn't know the specific thing about rape culture. Yeah. Or they don't feel like I'm judging them because I'm talking to them in their way. I'm describing something that they don't know about people of color. And yeah, it's, it's really, it's great. It's a great balance that when you find can make a lot of progress. And that's my goal with both forms of work is to make a lot of progress. I love it. All right. It was a, so much fun talking to you, Misha. And you. Uh, so happy. go to com and listen to his album. Thank you. Thanks for Pito. And we'll see you later. Thanks again to Misha D. Check out his comedy special at DolphinOfTheLand.com. All right, so this happened. Not a lot has happened in my own life, but I was very excited that Joe Biden picked uh, Kamala Harris to be his VP. And I know she was sort of always at the top of the list, but when I got the text, like I signed up for the text from the campaign, I was thrilled. I was like, yes. And I was surprised at how thrilled I was and how emotional it was because she was always sort of talked about as, as the number one choice. But when it happened, I was like, oh, my God. And um, what's been really fun to watch is I watch my fair share of MSNBC and I've never seen all the talking head people feel happy. So the, all of these people that you see, you know, talking about coronavirus and the corruption of the day, like Eugene Robinson and, and Claire McCaslin, all these like sort of talking head people, 
their countenance, they're just bursting. And it's just funny. You, like, look at them, and you've never seen them like that. They're always sitting in their nice houses, you know, with uh, a, a, a loaded gun on the kitchen island. Anyway, that's been fun. Um, anyway, it was exciting to feel hopeful, and we'll see how things proceed. All right, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. <laughs>